Last week we saw that we should rejoice with God as he remarries his wayward bride. Today we draw near to the end of the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 63 and 64 we see a plea for God's mercy. And then next week, not next week, probably in two weeks actually, in Isaiah 65 and 66 we see God's answer to the people. Uh, and a, a glorious answer that it is as we see the end of the book wrapping up. Today we're going to look at that plea for mercy. So I think Isaiah 63 and 64 encourage us to plead for God to glorify His name as He comes to deliver His people. We start out in verses 1 through 6 and we see that God is glorious in His wrath against the nations. He comes down in majesty in verse 1. We say, well, what in the world does Edom and Basra have to do with anything? Well, you recall that Esau was associated with Edom and the color red both the dirt and um, Esau's hair and beard and all that were also red. There's all this association with redness. Basra is a place where they would do a lot of red dye, sort of a brilliant reddish scarlet color. And so here's the picture. God comes down in redness from these places. From the, from the heights, he comes down and his appearance is red. And yet, at the same time, he comes with righteousness to save even in his wrath. And I think the reality is that someone in the Old Testament looking at verse 1 would have potentially been very puzzled. How is it that God is coming down with red garments stained with blood and yet talking about salvation? Well, we see in the New Testament those two ideas united. Jesus both bears God's wrath with blood-stained clothing and is the one who's accomplishing salvation and God himself is the one who's pouring out that wrath. And so we see here, I think, a very messianic kind of idea anticipating the ministry of Jesus. Um, we see God pouring out wrath on the nations in verses 2 through 6. Evil is essentially trampled. And just a very um, I don't even know the right word. Uh, the word gory comes to mind. A picture where basically the soldier is fighting and he's killing enemies with his weapon and he's covered with blood. That um, it's as though there's this heavy rock that's rolling over something and the blood is coming out. And God basically comes down in his day of vengeance and he destroys his enemies. And we look at something like this and we say, that doesn't seem like the God that we know. And part of the reason for that is the God that we know is not really sometimes the God of the Bible. It's the God that... Uh, American Christianity has kind of portrayed him as a God who's kind of more like your grandpa at Christmas and less the majestic ruler of the universe. I don't think that we should push this picture too far in that this is not the only thing that's true about God, but there's a lot in the Bible that describes God as a mighty warrior, one who takes vengeance on his enemies. And so, as we wrestle with this sort of idea, 
I think we need to see that the reason that he comes down is very important. The reason is there is no one who can help. Verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. Verse 5, I looked and there was no one to help, and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. When God's people faced their enemies and they had no one to deliver them, God steps in. When there is no warrior mighty enough to destroy those who are going to destroy his people, God steps in. And in his wrath and in his vengeance, he destroys all these who oppose his people, but more importantly, those who oppose him, some of whom are his people. And so there's this, this strange, not coincidence, but intersection of him delivering his people and yet also at the same time judging some of his people even as he judges the nations. God brings this salvation even in judgment. Verse 4, the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Both things side by side. And, and we, we, again, struggle to understand that sometimes, but if we look through what happens throughout Scripture, there are so many cases where there is this layering of God pouring out his wrath and at the same time delivering. And whether you are experiencing God's wrath or God's deliverance is entirely dependent on where you stand before him. And so, think about the flood. God saves Noah and his family, eight people, destroys everyone else in the entire world. Salvation with judgment. God establishes a home for the people of Israel. If I go back, God delivers the people of Israel from Egypt. At what cost? At the death of every firstborn of the Egyptians. In addition to all those who had died from polluted water and all the other plagues before that. God delivers them at the Red Sea at the expense of Pharaoh's army that is drowned. God delivers them when they arrive in the land of Canaan at the expense of the Canaanites who in their perverse idolatry God finally brings judgment and wipes many of them out even though the Israelites never fully fulfilled what God wanted them to do. Over and over and over again in the stories of the Old Testament we see God accomplishing salvation alongside judgment. We see that extending to the New Testament as well. We see the glimpse of it in 2 Thessalonians 1 where it says, You who are troubled and persecuted and facing difficulty, rest with us for the day is coming when God in flaming fire is going to take vengeance, but all those who believe and trust in Him are going to marvel at His amazing salvation. We see in the book of Revelation, the, those who are fleeing from God's wrath saying, The mountains fall on us, and the caves hide us, and all of these sorts of things as God sends again plagues and disasters and signs and wonders in His vengeance on the earth for sin. He has restrained himself and restrained sin, and then he lets sin run its full course. He has restrained his wrath, and then he pours out his wrath and vengeance on the earth. We say, well, how can he do this? Because God is the one who can rightly and perfectly accomplish vengeance. You and I can't, which is why Paul says in Romans, don't take your own revenge. God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Paul says, you be kind to your enemy and show love to him and let God sort out the justice and the judgment and all those sorts of things because you don't know enough to do it fairly and you're not strong enough to do it thoroughly. But God 
is strong enough. God does know enough, and God does carry out vengeance. He accomplishes salvation even in judgment. There's also this idea that we see in the Old Testament that we see in the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain murders Abel. What does God say? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the earth. There's places in Isaiah and other things in the prophets where it says that the earth is sort of rebelling or, or, or rising up against all the evil and the corruption that's taking place on it. And that is not satisfied until God judges and destroys sinners. And so God is glorious in His wrath against the nations. There's evil everywhere. His people are being destroyed. It seems like there's no hope for any of these things being accomplished. God rises up. God in strength destroys His enemies. In the same moment accomplishes vengeance and salvation. Destruction and redemption. Death and the provision of life. And the only place that we see this fulfilled is in the person of Jesus. Where he both receives God's wrath and bears God's wrath on the behalf of sinners and then offers them the opportunity to be freed from God's wrath at the same time. The song that we sang, uh, Why Do We Sing Adam's Race Instead of All Our Race? Here's the tension in my mind that I continue to wrestle through. What specifically did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Did Jesus die for sinners who are going to end up in hell? Or did he very clearly and specifically accomplish exactly what he set out to do? Not, is Jesus' death sufficient to save the entire world? If God so willed, absolutely. But we look through the pages of Scripture and there are clearly those who experience God's wrath for eternity. We see it in Revelation. We see allusions to it in the Gospels. We see it throughout the Old Testament. And so those who are the objects of God's vengeance in that final day, at the very least do not experience God's salvation in the same way as those of us who are trusting in Him. And so this is something that is worth having a conversation about. It's not something we put in our statement of faith because it's not at the end of the day, something that makes a huge difference in our day-to-day -day experience or in our ability to fellowship with one another. But the reason I'm highlighting it is this. If we look at the realities of sin and say, well, Jesus died to save everybody, and I'm not saying that that's false because there's passages where that seems to be what they're saying in 1 John 2 and places like that. There's some sense in which Jesus dies on behalf of the whole world. And there's another sense in which Jesus dies to save the ones that God hands over to him, John 6 and John 17, and he will absolutely accomplish that. And we say, how does all that fit together? <laughs> it's a degree to which it's this mystery. My concern is that we avoid two extremes. One extreme is saying, well, Jesus only died to save those that he's going to save, and so we are some way able to figure that out, so I'm not going to give the gospel to somebody. That's wrong. We are supposed to extend the gospel to everybody and let God sort it out, like in the parable of the wheat and tares. 
The other extreme that I'm concerned that we avoid is over here where we say, well, Jesus died for everybody, so everybody's going to be okay. So there's also no motivation to witness. There you don't witness because you're like, God's going to save him if he saves him. And here you don't witness because you say everybody's going to be okay eventually. We cannot fall, go to either of those two extremes. We cannot come here and say, well, everybody's going to end up in heaven because that's clearly not the case. There are those who face God's wrath and vengeance. We can't come over here and say, well, only a handful are going to end up in heaven, so why bother telling people about Jesus? We have to stand right here and say, Jesus accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish. There's a sense in which he died for the sins of the whole world. There's a sense in which only some will be saved. So I need to witness, let God sort out the details, but plead with people so they don't face God's vengeance and God's wrath because there is a day coming when in blood-stained robes, God is going to judge the earth. Paul talks about it in Acts 17. There is a day in which he is appointed that he's going to judge the earth by the one that he set aside, Jesus. So now is the day of repentance. Now is the appointed time. Don't wait around. Because there's only two options. Are you one of those who stands with God? Or are you one of those who faces God's wrath? There's not this middle position of, well, you know, maybe there's a second chance after this life. Or maybe I can change my mind at the last instance. I see him coming, I'm like, yeah, now I'm on your side. It will come so quickly and so suddenly, there's not going to be that opportunity. I know there's all the things about the Left Behind movies and all that sort of thing as far as, uh, you know, are there opportunities for people to trust Jesus after... Uh, Jesus comes back and delivers the church and during the tribulation, all those sorts of things. I don't think the Bible specifically says if you heard the gospel before Jesus comes back and you go through the tribulation, can you be saved? I think that's a question that's somewhat impossible for us to answer. Here's, I think, the better question. Are you willing to stake your eternal destiny on the off chance that God gives you another opportunity to repent? Because the reality is you might come to that day and say, I'm too scared and I'm too afraid and I still don't want to trust in God. So you can't count on tomorrow that there's going to be another, another opportunity for repentance is the point that I'm making. So God shows His glory and His wrath against sin, yet in that judgment He brings salvation even to some of those very sinners under His wrath. And we see that in verses 7 to 14. God showed loving kindness all along the way. God was faithful according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. God was faithful to his people. That word loving kindness is translated different ways in different versions of the Bible. Sometimes it's covenant loyalty. Sometimes it's this idea of of mercy The idea is basically God has made a promise and he's going to stick to it regardless of what anybody else does. The Israelites go their own way. God remains faithful. In 1 Timothy it says, We may deny him, but he cannot deny himself. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He maintains a relationship with his people even when they stray away uh, away from him and they don't deserve it. And there's no reason for him to keep doing it. God is faithful. Really quick application.
when it says husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that is the New Testament picture of the Old Testament reality of God's faithfulness and loving loyalty. When you make that commitment, it's not something that you say, well, if stuff gets hard, we can do something else. Or, well, here's the 30 things I didn't know when we got married that have come up since then. Keeping in mind that she also has a list of things she didn't know for her side, right? Regardless of all those things, the reason that the world say would say, yeah, you don't love each other anymore, or life is hard, or they're just these things that are just really difficult to work through. If we are called to be like Christ toward the church and like God toward Israel in the Old Testament, first of all, that's an impossible task that you need God's grace in. So pray to Him for that. And second of all, you cannot bail on your marriage just because it's not what you expected. It is for sickness and health, for riches and poverty, for the days when you are both difficult to live with, when your kids are not exactly what you thought they would be at a particular point, when your life looks different from how you had mapped it out when you were 5 or 15 or 25. God was faithful to his people. We saw that last week. We see it again here. And it's just one of those things that I think that we need to wrestle with and say, if God is faithful, then why would his people be any less? And that extends to wives as well. But the emphasis here and the emphasis in Ephesians 5 is on husbands being like God, like Jesus. Verse 8, God expected obedience and faithfulness from his people. Surely they're my people, sons who will not deal falsely, so he became their savior. God wasn't blind to the reality of what the Israelites were going to do. He knew what was going to happen. But there was a reasonable expectation of, if I am going to devote myself to you and give myself to you and all those sorts of things, then there's going to be a corresponding um, response. So to go back to the marriage illustration, if the husband is supposed to have undying loyalty, the, the wife is supposed to have unswerving allegiance. It works both ways. When God said, Israel, you are mine, Israel should have said yes. But what did we see last week and what do we see all throughout the book of Isaiah? Israel said, yeah, you know, I know you said you're our God and you've done all this stuff for us and that's really great. We really want to, you know, see other people. We really want to chase after other gods. We really want to go our own way because we think that's going to work out better for us. God had a right to expect allegiance from his people because of all that he had done for them. 
And God freely sacrificed for people who did not deserve it. Verse 8, He became their Savior. Verse 9, He shared their trouble and gave them help. In all their affliction, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His mercy, He redeemed them, and He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. God shared their trouble. God gave them help. I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is the vision He lays out before them. Yet the people rebelled and provoked his wrath. Verse 10 through 14. They rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them. Now, this is where I think the analogy breaks down, going back to the marriage illustration, because we as individuals do not have God's authority or right to seek vengeance as God does. And so while I made very clear application from verses 7 through 9, I think we have to be more careful with verse 10 because... You cannot force your wife to be sanctified. You cannot force her to turn away from her sin if she strays into sin. You have to plead with God to accomplish that. Now, is there a place for uh, speaking truth to one another? Absolutely. Is there a place for having conversations about things? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you or I have no ability to cause any other human being to follow God simply because of our intense efforts. And so there's a very real sense in which we need to take that to God who can change their hearts, God who can work. So God responds to the disloyalty of Israel by what Hebrews 12 talks about, this uh, sort of um, just discipline in order to purify them of their wickedness. And that result was somewhat accomplished in verse 11, that people remembered the days of old of Moses. This is what they should have been thinking about all along. God saved us from Egypt. God saved us at the Red Sea. God saved us in the wilderness. God saved us from the Canaanites. We should follow God. But it wasn't until this point that God brings them into this moment of discipline that their land is ravaged, their people killed, their houses burned, their flocks destroyed, their crops gone. They finally begin to say, we should have been following God. Think about what He has done before. And so He highlights these things that God had done in the past. Led them through Moses, divided the waters, did not cause them to stumble in the wilderness, gave them rest. God led your people to make yourself for a, you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. The people rebelled and provoked God's wrath, and yet God is faithful in a way that brings glory and honor to His name. God pours out wrath against sin. We saw that very clearly in verses 1 through 6. Yet He's faithful to His people, verses 7 through 14. Though they deserved His wrath, He would deliver them if they repented and pleaded for His mercy. And so we see in the end of chapter 63 into chapter 64, God delivers his people when they plead with him. We see, first of all, that God is still the redeemer, even though the people forget. Verse 15 shows us that faithful men wonder where God is in their trouble. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation where your zeal and your mighty deeds, the stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. This is the cry of the psalmist over and over again in the laments. Lord, how long? Why? When will we find deliverance? When will we see your rest? When will you help us again? Those who come before God in this way plead God's character. 
despite just punishment against sin. You are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. They plead God's character despite forgetfulness and rebellion of the people. There is this reality standing alongside the fact that uh, God says, I am alone in this passage, that in every generation it seems God preserves a remnant of those who follow him. Elijah thought it was just him, but there were 7,000 others who were also faithful followers of God. Other people at various points thought, I'm alone, and yet there was at least always this handful of people who were following after God. These, I think, are the ones who are pleading this prayer before God. And so when God says, there's no one with me, he's saying collectively, everyone's going their own way. But there are a handful of exceptions to that, those who are pleading with God, where are you, Lord? You're our God, even though we're not following you, we're not recognizing you. Spare those who are undeserving. Verse 17, why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Really interesting phrasing here that he seems to be attributing to God their strain and it's not as though God is guilty for their sin, but he's saying, apart from God doing something that we're going to keep going this way, you have to be the one to draw us back because we're never going to find the way back on our own. And then there's this reality that under God's wrath, the people of Israel are no different from the other nations. Verse 18, Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Think about what was unique to Israel. We have a great God, and he's represented by this temple that he didn't really need. We see that in the New Testament. But it's this visible sign of God's presence with us. When God abandons us and the nations destroy the temple, what do we have that's unique? Nothing. And so he's pleading for God to restore to them the special relationship that they had before they wandered away into sin. We see in chapter 64 that God is still their father even though his sons wander away. God is still the father even though his sons wander away. There's again this plea for God to deliver for the sake of his name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they've not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. I'd be hesitant to pray something like this in light of the beginning of chapter 63. And yet for the one, as we'll see in just a moment, who stands before God in his righteousness, there is an expectation that if we plead for God to come and he shows up, we will find deliverance and not wrath. This idea of God coming and causing the mountains to quake at his presence, I've just been teaching through Acts again. And... In Acts 4, what do the people do when they're threatened by those who are persecuting the early church? They say, God, you made the world. Hear our prayer. Cause us to be bold in our proclaiming Jesus and in the work that you want to accomplish through us. And what does he say, or what does he do? He causes the entire place in which they are to be shaken. Paul's in jail with Silas, if I remember right. And they're in jail... And in Philippi, 
and they sing praise to God, and God sends this earthquake that shakes the jail and frees them. God comes in this majestic glory with earthquakes and lightning and fire and storms, and we see who He is. There's two responses that we can have. The response that you can have when I was a little kid that my grandma always had, which was, there's a tornado warning. We've got to go hide in the closet. We're going to have blankets. We're going to sit in here with the weather radio till it goes by. Make sure we're okay. Now, is there some wisdom in recognizing that um, tornadoes are dangerous and we should be aware of them and not just be out running around? Yes, there's, a, there's that reality. There's also the reality that we probably went a little bit overboard in our fear about it coming right to us. Um, in all the tornadoes that happened, there was only one that ever touched down near where I grew up, and it was about 15 minutes away. And it was sad. There was a girl who was in a, like a mobile home, and it got picked up and destroyed. And I, as I recall, she died. And so there is a, a threat. But I think it's easy for us to be overly fearful of things like that. If in the moment of the storm, you have someone you trust with you, are you more or less likely to fear the storm? Much less likely. And so if the God who makes the storm is your God, you're not going to fear it like, is, like you would if you don't know him at all. And so when you pray that God would come in glory and cause the mountains to quake and the mountain peaks to smoke, because of the glory of his passing, there's a degree to which there should be reverent fear and preparation of heart to make sure we're really ready to pray something like that. Because sometimes people will pray things like this. They'll say, God, I want to see your presence. And they're not at all prepared for that. But if we are prepared for it, even if all around us people are going their own way and sinning, we can have confidence in the midst of the storm, the earthquake, the fire, the lightning, everything else, that God is our God and that when He comes and His wrath is poured out, it's not for me. Who escapes God's wrath in a situation like this? Verses 5-7. through seven. You meet Him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. And this is not necessarily true of us all our lives long because the next part of verse 5, You were angry for we sinned, we continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. There has to be this acknowledgement that we are not faithful to God and we are not righteous before God in our own strength. And for much of our lives, there are moments in which we are very clearly sinners. So how can this person in Isaiah 64 plead with God to come down and not be afraid he's going to be swept away in the torrent of God's wrath? Because of the beginning of verse 6, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness who remembers you in your ways, behold, you were angry. You acknowledge your past sin, you recommit yourself to following after God, and you find His mercy. Now, you have to actually acknowledge your sin. Sometimes we say, eh, 
I kind of messed up, but everybody does that. This wasn't the best, but, you know, stuff happens. We can't have this sort of glib attitude towards sin and act like sin's not a big deal. Here it's acknowledged. It's like one who is unclean. We say unclean, okay, you need to take a shower. Like No, like ceremonially unclean, like cannot come into God's presence, like defiled. So the response that we would have to finding an animal rotting in your backyard, like that kind of unclean, not like you got a little bit of dirt on you working in the garden. God's attitude towards sin is far worse than our attitude toward finding something decaying in our backyard. But that picture of unclean, the picture of like a filthy garment, something that's thrown away, that can't be used again, that's corrupted and polluted. We wither like a leaf. Think, I mean, fall's coming, the leaves fall off the trees, those last few leaves hang on, and that's all that they're there, and then the wind comes and blows, and they're gone too. That's what we see in verse 6. And then verse 7, well, you know, maybe there's a lot of people who are okay. No, there's no one who calls on your name. All of us are corrupt. This idea that we see acknowledged um, in Isaiah 53 and in Romans 3 and all these other places, everybody goes their own way. No one seeks after God on their own, all that sort of idea. We very clearly acknowledge sin, and yet we remember that God rejoices in the one who pursues righteousness, and to the degree that we turn away from that sin and we turn to God by His grace and by His strength and pursue righteousness, God forgives all of our past sins. So that when we pray to God for His deliverance, we don't have to fear His wrath, but we can be confident in His coming. We do this as we ask for God's mercy because of His faithful character, not ours. And we need to do this before all is destroyed. Look at verses 8 through 12. But now, O Lord, You are our Father, we are the clay, and You are a potter, and all of us are the work of Your hand. The only reason we have the right to come before God and say to God, Come down, but spare me in Your wrath, is is if we have this relationship with Him. If He is our Father, if we are the clay and He's shaping us and molding us, and we belong to Him, we're the work of His hands, then though we have strayed and sinned, as we turn from that sin and we turn to Him, we can expect that as a Father, He will receive us back. We can pray what verse 9 says, Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. God, I look around at the devastation. I say, I need you and I know it. And will you deliver me and will you forgive me? That's the attitude that we have to come where we acknowledge our sin. We turn toward righteousness. We say, here's the consequences of our sin. But Lord, we ask that you would come down to deliver us And we do not fear you in it because our hearts are now right before you. There's an element of urgency to this. Will you restrain yourself with these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? There's a breaking point. There's a point at which nothing will be left if God continues to put forth his anger. And so the psalmist is pleading and saying, God, are you going to step in? Are you going to help us because we've repented, because we've turned from our sin? Though we deserved it, though you were right, yet you are our loving Father, you are glorious, you can save us, you can deliver us. Do it before it's too late.
because of who God is, not because of who I am. In Isaiah 63 and 64, the righteous see God's power against his enemies. It traces the path of how they became God's enemies. We were God's people, and we still are, but now we're under his wrath, and it's all our own doing. And then there's this plea for God, according to his character, to deliver before they're utterly destroyed like the pagan nations. And so where do you stand before God? Like I said at the beginning, in those first few verses, God comes down in wrath with garments red with blood of vengeance against his enemies. In the day of God's vengeance, the day of the Lord, when all that we see is wiped out, where will you be? On God's side or in opposition to him? Under his wrath, his blood-stained robes, and you are the target of his vengeance? Or covered with the blood-stained robes of Christ, who died to free you from sin? What does that look like? It looks like what Isaiah 63 and 64 talk about. We acknowledge that we're sinners. We acknowledge the consequences of our sin. We turn away from that sin and turn to God and ask for His mercy such that when He comes to punish sin, we no longer have to fear His coming. I'm a sinner. Jesus died to pay for sin. I was going my own way. Now I want to go your way. I loved what I loved because I loved it, and it, whether you hated it or not, God, I was going to do that. Now I will love the things and do the things that you want me to. That's the change that has to happen in order for us to be on God's side when he comes in this day of vengeance. The only way to find his mercy, if you find yourself as one of his people, like the Israelites, I know I belong to God, but here's all the ways I've been going my own way, and I deserve God's wrath, and I need to deal with that. The only way to find God's mercy is to return to him. Not to say my sin is too big or what I've done is too great. It can't happen. He won't help me. Or I've tried over and over and it hasn't worked. Keep turning back to him and he will deliver and he will help. You need to find his mercy before it's too late. Will God automatically bring death to Christians who go their own way and who willfully do what he hates? I don't know that we can say that absolutely in every last circumstance. But when we look at 1 Corinthians, it says there are those who observe the Lord's table in arrogance and pride and sinfulness who because of that sin were dead. There are other ways in which we can stray and sin that will sooner or later bring death to us, whether through what from a human perspective seemed like accidents or just the, the eventual result of committing certain kinds of sins. And yet, God will forgive, and God will restore, and God will make a place for us to continue to serve Him despite all of those things. The thing that we need to recognize is that we can't just let things go indefinitely and say, well, Jesus died for me, so it's all okay. 
Paul said, should we continue in sin because there's more grace when we sin more? Should we sin more so that there's more grace so God has a greater opportunity to show his mercy to us? May it never be. It's a completely wrong way of looking at it. We don't sin more because God's grace is more. We fall on his mercy more because we experience his great grace and mercy when we have sinned greatly. Why might you and I need this mercy? What sorts of things do we, as those who claim to know Jesus, and I think for the most part do, need to deal with God about? If we refuse to forgive, say, that's not that big of a deal. Well, Jesus says if you don't forgive other people, their sins against you, our Father in Heaven won't forgive you. That's a whole other topic we don't have time to go into all the specifics of. But the bottom line is, forgiveness is important, and if you and I are unwilling to do it, there's something wrong with our hearts that we need to deal with before God. Why else might we need this mercy? Our world is constantly trying to press in on us and shape us to be like it. And so if we love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that it talks about in 1 John, we need to deal with those things before God. If, as we were looking at in Sunday school, our first and primary focus is not on seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, but on seeking what pleases us, our temporal concerns, things with our family and our work and all those sorts of things, and we could care less about God and His work in the world, we need to repent of that and continue to turn back to God. If we worship false gods in some way, what does that look like? Any number of things. Anything that comes in your heart before God needs to get demoted and God has to be first. And that's something we have to constantly be dealing with God about. God knows your heart. And it's easy for us to think in all these ways that I'm okay because other people think I'm more or less okay. God knows everything that's in our hearts. We can't hide these things from Him, even though we may be able to hide them from other people. Maybe you say, you know what, as far as I know, I've dealt with all of the sins that... I need to before God, and I have salvation in the blood of Jesus who bore God's wrath in my place, and I'm trying to follow after him in the righteousness as described in chapter 64. What should you do with this passage? I think that you need to pray for God to continue to sustain you in that, because I think there's always these moments where we think that we're good, and then we can fall into temptation. And I think that you also need to intercede with God on behalf of those that you know clearly to be under God's wrath at a given moment. Don't give up because they still have time, but that time may be short. You need to ask God to glorify His name by delivering those who rightly deserve His wrath, by delivering even enemies who at the moment refuse to turn. And so you and I need to go to God in repentance so that we individually might be spared from His wrath and with intercession for those who you believe to be under God's wrath because they desperately need His deliverance as well. And when we do this, what happens? God is glorified. God is glorified when He punishes His enemies, but He is also glorified when He takes His enemies and He changes them to be His friends, His family, His own. God will be glorified in both, but we ought to pray pleading for God to glorify His name by coming to deliver His people. We need to be on God's side. 
We need to be in a right standing before him. And we ought to desperately long that all the people around us are too. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for these truths from your word. Sobering realities. We see blood and vengeance. Fire and earthquake. And it makes us probably feel a little bit uncomfortable. And we should, because I think we don't take sin very seriously a lot of times. At the same time, we see the great mercy and forgiveness that you offer, even to those who've strayed, those who should have known better, those who've gone their own way over and over again. If that's any of us here, Lord, help us to turn to you before it's too late. And if we are following after you, we pray that you would put a burden in our hearts to intercede for those who are under your wrath, that they would not experience your day of vengeance, but rather your day of salvation. Lord, you will be glorified in these things. We plead that you would be glorified by delivering your people, and that all of us here would be your people in whom you're glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.